there now. Great. Wonderful to see you. And um, so uh, is it accurate that I am being somehow in speaker view or spotlight or something so that, or am I just one little tile on your, I'm, I'm one little tile or I'm, I'm on speaker view. Big, I'll see all of me. Okay, because I want to show you my tile. You may be seen it already, but I want to talk a little bit about it. And um, it ended up there some time ago by, um, because I didn't have much I could think of to put up as a tile. So I put this one up. We can't hear you, Gil. He's disappeared. Hopefully he'll come back soon. So you, you can't hear me? You disappeared for a few minutes. Your tile appeared and then you disappeared from sound and sight. So I, I don't know, let's try again. I, don't, I have no idea what that is about, but uh, let's try. And if um, that requires something, uh, changing the Wi-Fi here, I can try doing something. But I wanted to talk about this uh, tile. So let me know, speak up again if you can't hear me. No, we can't hear you when you put the tile up for some reason. And now you can hear me. Yeah. Oh. I think we've all seen the tile, so. <laughs> okay, well, let me tell you about it. Mm -hmm. So it's right, you know, it's about, it's about two kilometers from here, from IMC. <clears throat> and uh, this, uh, you know, probably almost three meter tall Buddha is sitting there uh, looking at the freeway where there's, it's a, I think it's a, a at least 10 lane highway freeway that it's looking at 10 lanes both directions and uh it carries lots of the traffic here in the peninsula so it's often quite dense with cars and there's that buddha kind of with his hand up blessing the freeway looking at it and if you drive by the freeway halfway through redwood city you have this buddha there looking at you on your car and uh <clears throat> It's kind of, you know, kind of nice that it's kind of in Redwood City. And it kind of complements, I suppose, that in the highest point in Redwood City, the, the little mountain here, there's a big cross. So one of the lowest points is the, is the Buddha. But this Buddha is uh, positioned on top of a cinder block trash enclosure. And uh, inside are these big trash bins that, uh, for trash that they keep there. And I love it because it's the idea that uh, uh, the lotus growing in muddy water. And you need, you know, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh said, no mud, no Buddha. 
you need the world of defilements, the world of the messy world, in order to practice and to someone to flower out of it, to find our freedom from it and emerge, emerge out of it, but still rooted in it. So the lotus is still rooted in the mud, but the lotus flower is untouched by the mud, but it comes out of it. So a Buddha comes out of our trash. All our trash is the source for where Buddhahood kind of gets born. And, and it's, uh, the Buddha sits on top of all this trash and uh, sits there. And I love the way he sits kind of in such a dignified, upright way. And, and with his hand in a peaceful way, kind of facing everyone. And maybe the artist thought it was, the Buddha was blessing the cars or blessing people. Um, I kind of see it a little different. I see that, uh, that um, he's kind of doing a combination of I'm safe, I'm peaceful, I don't have a weapon in my hand, and, I'm, um, and I care. I, I'm here and I'm attentive to you and, and will offer my care and my teaching or whatever. So that's the local sites here. That the, and, um, and I wanted to also do that to introduce the topic for today. And uh, as I was thinking about it today, I understood myself a little bit better, perhaps a little piece of me. When I was in um, the Zen monastery for three years, about halfway through that time, I was um, two thirds of the way through that time, I was uh, assigned to be the gardener for the, they had these large, somewhat large gardens. It was my job to tend to them. And uh, we were doing a lot of meditation, but there was about five hours of work during the day. And I would go out there in the morning for the first work period, which was I think around 10 o'clock in the morning. And, um, <clears throat> and I would just walk around the garden and just look at all the plants, see how they were doing, I was checking them out. And I just felt so tender and warm and caring and loving. And I, I, the, back then I had the language I had was, I was parental. <laughs> I, I don't know what that means for you, but that was the language I had. And I would just go around and I felt a little bit like I'm not working, I should be working. I should be doing something in the garden, but I just like, just it just was so wonderful just to go around and, and say hello. and. Just, uh, I just felt so warm inside and so caring for these plants that uh, it just seemed like the best use of my time. And I'm thinking about it now because um, there's a, an emotion of, that uh, is talked about, an emotion of caregiving that's talked about in the suttas that has seldom gotten much discussion here in the, in the West or in the modern world. And part of that is because the English translations will translate this word as compassion. And thinking that it's compassion, people uh, seeing the word compassion, English readers who know a little bit about Buddhism assume that what's being translated is karuna. But in fact, <clears throat> every time the Buddha in the suttas, in the English translations, 
the Buddha does something actively and it's called compassion, it is not karuna that's being talked about. It's a, the word is anukampa, A-N-U-K-A-M-P-A. And anukampa is the, is the impulse to do things for the welfare and benefit of others. And I think that uh, this uh, you know, way I was with my plants, I didn't have compassion for the plants. I didn't exactly have metta for them, wishing for their well-being. May they be happy, <laughs> exactly. Um, I didn't have mudita for them, sympathetic joy. I don't know, maybe I had some equanimity, I don't know. But uh, I had this <clears throat> caregiving instinct that I called parental. Thinking about it today, I thought about, you know, I was present for the birth of both my sons. A tender time. And, you know, the doctor wraps them in a blanket soon after they're born and handed them to me. I held them before my, my wife because she was uh, uh, had, had, had to have C-sections both times. So <clears throat> it was, she was busy. And here I was holding these little kids. And at <clears throat> some point they were, they seemed content. They seemed warm and content and didn't seem, they weren't crying and they were just, I mean, the, the younger one, he, he liked to look at uh, things. The older one liked to look at people so right from the start. <laughs> and, um, but they were just there. And it was nothing I had to do for them. It wasn't like they were suffering. So it wasn't, I don't think I wanted to have compassion for my newborn babies right off the top, you know, like, like you guys came into a difficult world and I'm going to have compassion for you. And, you know, that, that wasn't really that, I mean, I could have had that, I guess, but that didn't seem right. And, and wishing them goodwill and happiness, I don't know, that, that doesn't seem to be quite, that seems a little abstract in the moment. I just had, I just really had this love for them that I would call a certain kind of care. I cared about them and I wanted to offer care. And the care was to hold them and in my arms next to my chest and keep them warm and keep them connected and maybe rock them back and forth a little bit. And I wouldn't say it was compassion. I wouldn't say it was mudita or metta, equanimity either, even. <clears throat> I think it was closer to what is called anukampa. And anukampa is more than compassion. It can include compassion, but it's a caregiving instinct that wants people to be happy. It works for us, cares for the welfare and happiness of others, regardless of whether they're suffering or not. In the, in the Pali suttas and the te ancient teachings, the word anukampa, as I said, is the word that's used when the Buddha agrees to teach 
people ask him, with Anukampa, please teach us. He receives people's donations out of Anukampa. He teaches out of Anukampa. He, um, <clears throat> but it's also a very ordinary term. Friends have Anukampa for each other. Now, if I had a friend who went with me, you know, spent the day with me, a good, really good friend, and I was just kind of, I was feeling pretty good. I wasn't struggling with anything. And the whole day long, my friend just had all this compassion for me. It was just clear that he was always compassionate, just like every word was compassionate, every listening, every presence. I would beg him to stop. I think it'd be kind of a little bit too much. That's not what my friends is supposed to be about. I mean, I know my friend will have compassion if, if the need is there, but if we're just going around and being friends, that, that doesn't seem quite right. But if my friend cared for me the whole time, offered a simple care uh, that, I was that I was worthy of some kind of ongoing attention and presence and carefulness or just an ordinary care, I think I would feel like that's appropriate, that's nice, I care for my friend. I care what they're up to and what's going on and want to learn, for, learn about what, what's happening to them. So in the suttas, friends have anukampa for friends. <clears throat> Caregivers have anukampa for children. Teachers have anukampa for their students. It's an ordinary word for something that's a little different than compassion. And it's uh, kind of defined as the desire for, or the movement, the impulse to, to work for the welfare and happiness of others, which is a different impulse to work for the alleviation of the suffering of others. When they're suffering, that's a beautiful impulse. Compassion is wonderful. But because this word has been translated into English as compassion, I think what's lost is that it's a simpler impulse. It's a simpler, ordinary feeling of, of, uh, of and I like to translate the word anukampa as care. Simple caring that doesn't require it to be situations of suffering. In the ancient teachings, the motivation, the only discussion about what the motivation might be for this anukampa, this care, is respect. Or maybe the word can be translated as reverence. But to have respect, and with the respect we have for others, uh, then we care for them. If suffering has to, do, if compassion has to do with suffering, then to only see someone through the eyes of their suffering limits them. And limits also what the caregiving impulse might be, what we actually do. But if the, <clears throat> the caregiving impulse is a simple anukampa, simple care for their welfare and happiness, it can include compassion working for their, with their suffering, 
but it also includes when they're when they're things are going well for them wanting them to be even more but well happy sooner or later along the buddhist path practitioners have a lot of happiness i've had greater periods of kind of kind of continuous happiness deep deep wellsprings of happiness through this practice than any other any other things in my life And during those times, I didn't feel like my teachers that I went to talk to about my practice had compassion for me, but I certainly felt they cared for me. And they were guiding me to greater degrees of happiness, greater degrees of freedom. They wanted me to be even, you know, have a different kind of happiness. So it's anukampa. And the reason I like to translate it as care, it's such an ordinary, humble term in, in the English that I speak at, that it's, um, it's, and it also has the implications of, um, <clears throat> of valuing something. When you care for something, it's, another, it's kind of synonymous as saying you value it. But care also means the action of tending to something, nurturing something, and, taking care of it in an active way. So it has this range of meanings that I find very evocative. I find that the, sometimes in Buddhist circles, the call, the solitary call for compassion comes across a little bit like an obligation. And it feels like I get limited by it, even though I've based my life on compassion, it's a hugely important part of my life. It seems limiting to have that be the kind of primary foundation. But this anukampa is broader, wider. It allows for more space, for a different kind of way of being. And it's also simpler. I suspect that it's easier to have just a simple caring for someone than it is to drum up compassion in all kinds of circumstances. It can be as simple as opening the door for someone. It, you know, there's, they're not suffering, they can do it themselves, but it, it's a way of caring and showing care. All kinds of ordinary ways of caring for others. And also there can be all kinds of extraordinary ways of caring for others. Great examples of sacrifice and, and helping and doing something. And one of the things I find about this care, this anukampa, is that um, rather than being <clears throat> an expression of our compassion, Maybe it's an expression of our freedom because it has a light touch. It's not heavy or strong or it has a kind of a sweetness and softness to it, an ease to it. When I first started to feel this, 
the kind of trajectory of my own practice was I first uh, uh, was through Zen, in Zen practice was awakened to compassion and it changed my life, set the course for my, my whole adult life to discover this compassion. And then when I started doing Vipassana, I, I discovered metta, but I didn't discover it, but you know, it was introduced to me and discovered it for myself, in myself, and that became wonderful. And then I started feeling at some point as, as my practice continued, something that the only words I had to describe it was as compassion. And um, because I didn't have any vocabulary for it, but it, it didn't really occur to me that it could be something else. But, um, uh, but at some point when I started studying the suttas, and I came across this word, anukampa, and started looking at how it was used. He said, oh, this is not compassion. This has a lighter feeling, more open feeling. More, there's a lot of ease. I don't associate compassion exactly with ease. It has a little different quality to it. And this one is... Um, it has a lot of ease. It's the ease of it being non-obligatory, the ease of not having anything to prove, to be anything for anybody, except <clears throat> getting off this teaching platform to plug in the battery of this my laptop. So uh, I will do that for a moment. <clears throat> So I thought about this as a topic for today, because where does this practice lead? What other possibilities are there for us when we've cultivated stability, well-being, dharma confidence? What other possibilities are there for us when we when the experience of inconstancy, dukkha, not self, starts releasing the grip of our grasping, our attachments, starts opening the places that have been closed in us for maybe for decades. Where does that leave us? What are the possibilities for that? And then what, do, what, what about when we leave a retreat? If I use this as an occasion to give a rallying call to go out there and be compassionate, that could be nice, but it kind of is a big deal kind of a, that's a large kind of high bar to start living for the compassion of everyone. If it's a call to love everyone, that's good too. But you know, sometimes it's hard to love everyone. 
But if the call is with your ease, whatever ease you have, whatever freedom you have from attachments, whatever stability and well-being that you have access to it, you can rest in. With every degree in which your attitude of how to live and be attentive has somehow become less burdened by unnecessary baggage. Baggages of a self-identity and proving yourself and needing to be the right person and do the right thing. So if it comes, if the rallying call then is just go forth into the world and care, care for this world. Maybe, I mean, as I said, I don't want to belittle how important this is, but maybe for some of you, this won't be belittling it, but I'm thinking about, <clears throat> you know, if you have, uh, some people have pets and their pets are not suffering, maybe sometimes, their cat or their dog, and they're curled up next to you on the couch sleeping or purring or something. So having compassion for that is not, you know, you could in the abstract, you realize that this, the cat has probably been living for many lifetimes as many lifetimes to come of suffering and we better get on with it and help this cat get off the wheel of life and death. So you can kind of drum up a kind of rationale for compassion. But the simplicity of the moment, I think it's, can be easy to care about the cat. You just offer care. Offer care for a neighbor. Maybe it's not a big deal. It's maybe bringing in their mail when maybe they're too sick to be able to get it themselves. Doing someone a favor, doing a nice deed for someone to live a life of care. As I said earlier, this anukampa is related to respect, reverence, to live as if people are worthy of our care, worthy of care, to have to care for people, to think of them as important, valuable, no matter who it is, even someone you can't love, maybe you would care for them. Maybe there's some person out there that maybe it's a politician these days who really if strong, very displeased about them to say it mildly. But if they got a flat tire outside your house in the middle of a storm and knocked on your door, wet and cold and shivering, wouldn't you care for them a little bit? You don't have to have compassion for them because you can't stand the person, but you can still care, offer care, simple care. Living a life of care. So this is not a simple thing, small thing. 
when uh, the first group of 60 monastics were enlightened after the Buddha started teaching, he said to them, wander forth, go forth for the welfare of people, for the happiness of the multitude, out of, out of Anukampa for the world, for the good, welfare, and happiness of gods and humans. So this was the Buddha's instruction to go forth with Anukampa. So I don't know if my, my translation of calling it care is the most appropriate one or the one that inspires you the most. But what is this instinct? What is this impulse to live in the world for the good, the welfare, and the happiness of others? It is a kind of love. It is some kind of caregiving impulse. What if there is no obligation to do it? What if it could be done almost effortlessly? What if it doesn't have to be a big deal? What if it's done with a flavor, a taste, with a atmosphere, with a with a whole approach of freedom, doing it in a free way, being free of the results, free of the action, free of needing anything in return, ordinary and simple. Caring for a newborn baby, the parents are not expecting a thank you. So I offer this uh, idea here at the last talk of the retreat as a suggestion that you look inside of yourself to see if there's anything in there in you that corresponds to what I'm saying. That if you have anything in there that coming out of this practice this week, coming out of the place that you're at, the experiences you've had, how you feel now, how you feel coming to the end, or maybe at some point in the retreat, any time during the retreat, where maybe you weren't thinking about caring for anyone. But in fact, there was something about what you touched into that certainly would have led, led you to care for a neighbor, for a stranger that came to the door, or care for your plants in your garden. Or 
proper care for the world by going out on the sidewalk and picking up trash, which I did during this retreat here in front of IMC. There was trash around the sidewalk and the gutters of the street. So I went around, picked it up. And uh, I kind of like the idea of the people who live around here and come around, um, see a place that feels, you know, not trash, not, you know, just kind of clean. It was kind of a simple thing to do. And I wasn't expecting to, for anybody to know that I was doing it. Certainly wasn't expecting to tell you. <laughs> it's just, it's just, you know, simple acts of care. So what inside of you is a source for something that's so easy, easeful to do, an easy, easeful way of caring that feels integral to who you are, integral to what this practice brings out of you. And the reason to highlight it is partly so you'll go out and benefit the world, it'd be great. But it's also because this is a precious thing we have inside of us. This kind of simple, easeful care that only gets better the more we become free. Freedom, the liberation that this path points to, brings about, frees the heart's capacity to care. As we care for the world, we're exercising and stretching our freedom if we do care in this way that I'm talking about, if we can care without obligation, without a should, without proving anything, without getting credit, without it being a big deal, even in simple ways, we're exercising that freedom, stretching it, letting it grow and expand. It's a impulse that comes with freedom and which grows the freedom. If you want to find a way to practice in daily life, which is often a question people have at the end of a retreat, if there's something in you that resonates or corresponds to what I'm talking about, Live that, express that. Let that move your behavior and how you are in the world. Again, I can't underscore enough times for myself, at least it's not an obligation, but it is a way of bringing forth a greater mindfulness, greater attention, greater Dharma confidence, stability, well-being. It's this beautiful thing that we have that maybe as mammals, <laughs> we, 
you know, that there's this capacity for care. You see it, you know, in the animal kingdom, sometimes you see beautiful, beautiful expressions of care between a mother animal and its little child. It's a deep instinct. Some animals You know, what are they called? I forget the word now, but you know, when they go through each other's hair and pulls it, pull out the fleas. That's a kind of care. Maybe you, maybe you bake, bake some treat and bring it to a friend who doesn't need it. So it's not compassion but it's just a way of sharing the care, the friendship that we have. To care for the world, to care for the welfare and happiness of this world from this place, from what's revealed through this practice. So that caring becomes effortless or close to it as qualities of effortlessness, as qualities of selflessness, as qualities of freedom, qualities of maybe delight. Like I was delighted walking around the garden when I was the gardener. Just to this delight and happiness to feel this care, this warmth, this tenderness, this for the plants or for the babies, or for the animals, or for the neighbors, or for fellow practitioners, or for the strangers. Or it, just, it just goes out. And maybe, maybe one day, as you grow in this practice, you'll have a kind of Midas touch. Midas was the guy in Greek mythology, everything he touched turned to gold which was kind of a curse, but that everything you touch will be something that you care for. I was quite moved many years ago when I was sitting next to a, I spent a week kind of in the meditation hall, meditating next to a visiting Japanese monk. At some point during this retreat, he had been using a teacup and it was going to be the last time he used it before he returned it to the center. And before he gave it up, he bowed to it. And I said, what? An inanimate cup? You bowed to the cup? The cup's not going to know that. <laughs> That's not really the point whether the cup knows it or not. That was his instinct, his urge from his freedom, from his care. He cared for the cup. He respected the cup, he valued it. He was grateful for the cup. May you have the anukampa touch, that everything your heart touches, everything you touch, maybe you'll go, you care for it. Everything is care worthy. 
including yourself and your own heart. May you care well for your heart so that your heart will sing happily when it cares for others. May we care for each other in this complicated world that we live in. So thank you for this. And um, I think you have like another half a day in your part of the world for practicing. And um, I think that um, maybe you might want to think about <clears throat> how you want to prepare yourself for the end of the retreat tomorrow. Some people maybe want to just sit more, be quiet. Some people might want to go for a walk or kind of do a little bit more normal things. So you're a little bit more, the transition is more gradual. And I think Jill has an announcement about that. She's going to have, she has an offering that sometimes might be very supportive of what you get this evening going to or today do a, uh, something with the relational practice. Yes. Not a big announcement. I was just um, thinking to follow on this theme of caring for ourselves and each other. So in the evening session tonight, we can have another opportunity just to come together in small groups and do some more relational practice, just as an offering to support that. Coming into more communication very soon. Thanks. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great thing to start practicing in relationship and kind of exercising that capacity to practice or stay close to the practice world while we're in conversation, while we're listening, because it very quickly gets complicated, right? And so it's, uh, but after a week of practice, it might be a great place, time to explore the edges of how to practice and how to stay connected and how to bring the sweetness of the retreat or the benefits of the retreat into a relatively relatively or very safe container for, for exploring how to do this that uh, might support you as you go out into the world after the retreat. So thank you, Jill, for doing that. So thank you all. And uh, I look forward to our final time together in, in the morning. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.